0: merch button click on that it'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that hey on the swag that i'm using it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear sports history network and my favorite podcaster the sports history network store shop there today
1: first of all jarvis gets hurt it hurts his shoulder and then um a couple plays craig johnson gets hurt and then i'm like Shaking like like going crazy, I, you know. And luckily, I had you know Jamie Williams, who I went to high school with in Nebraska. He was on the team. I said, Jamie, Jamie, fire me up, man! Keep me going! Get me going! I, I, I'm going to be going in. I'm the last running back left, <laughs> you know. from 176 yeah. yards, scored two or three touchdowns. <laughs> I was the MVP of the um, player of the week. Yep, that's where that's where the coaches start. They believe me, like this guy can do this. That's why I played start playing more you know that's when i you know i mean when I took over that whole second half you know they, that's when they knew that i could i could I could play this game. <laughs>
0: Welcome to Hidden Yardage. I'm your host, Joe Moore. This podcast is a journey back to the 1980 college football season through the memories of those that played, coached, and covered it. New episodes released each week will carry listeners through that season one week at a time. For more information, please visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. If this is your first time listening, you may want to go back and start with Episode 1. This is Episode 8, Pluck and Grit. In 1846, the United States went to war with Mexico. The conflict was a boom to the penny press newspapers in the major cities of the day, as the public could not seem to get enough coverage of the conflict. Correspondents filed stories and soldiers wrote letters that were transmitted by telegraph or mail carrier from the battlefront to the newspaper offices where they could be printed and sold to anxious readers. A group of newspapers in New York City were spending a great deal of money to try and scoop one another and capture a larger share of the market. Not long after the war broke out, these five papers decided to band together and fund a Pony Express route through Alabama to get news of the war north faster than the post office could carry it. The venture became known as the New York Associated Press and would forever change how Americans consumed their news. In time, the AP expanded to become a trusted authority that would brave any danger to bring news from around the globe to the folds of hometown newspapers. When General George Custer's troops were overcome in the Battle of the Little Bighorn, an AP reporter was among the casualties. Nearly 100 years after its founding, the AP put itself squarely in the middle of a less bloody but no less serious conflict, the battle for college football's top team. Since 1936, college football fans have used the AP's weekly rankings to settle disputes that the sport has never been able to solve on its own, naming a national champion. The AP's national sports editor, Alan Gold started naming a college football All-American team in the 1920s, and by the mid-1930s, he was awarding a college football national championship to the team that he considered most deserving. College football had long stood out as a national sport that lacked a definitive process to crown a champion. Unlike professional sports leagues that used a tournament or matched up divisional leaders in a final winner-take-all game, college football had an array of subjective rankings and mathematical formulae to determine who was number one. In the 1920s, Frank Dickinson, an economics professor at the University of Illinois, created an equation to rank the teams in the Big Ten Conference. He was persuaded by a Chicago clothing salesman to expand his rankings to all teams, and in 1926, the Dickinson system crowned its first champion. Notably, Newt Rockne asked Dickinson to apply his system retroactively to the 1924 season, when Notre Dame was undefeated and led by the famous Four Horsemen. He did and 1924 is still the first championship claimed by the Irish. But Dickinson's system and other fledgling attempts to determine college football's best team lacked the clout and respect that accompanied the AP's proclamation. Following the 1935 season, Alan Gold of the AP awarded three teams, Minnesota, Princeton, and SMU, as tri-champions. The decision was unpopular. Gold was hung in effigy in at least one Minnesota town, and having three champions satisfied exactly nobody. After this controversy, Cy Sherman, a sports writer from Lincoln, Nebraska, who's credited for giving the name Cornhuskers to the University of Nebraska's football team, suggested that Gold pull the editors of the AP-affiliated papers to determine his champion in 1936. He agreed, and the tradition we know today as the AP poll was born. But with more opinions came more controversial rankings, perhaps none so much as the one that punctuated the 1947 season. Before 1960, the AP's final poll would be released after the end of the regular season. Bowl game results were not taken into consideration. Following season-ending victories by both Notre Dame and Michigan in 1947, both teams finished 9-0 and claimed the top two spots in the poll, with the Irish at number one. However, the Wolverines still had one game left to play in the Rose Bowl against the same Southern Cal team that Notre Dame had just routed 38 to 7. While the Irish were unable to play a postseason game due to a school policy, Michigan destroyed the Trojans 59 to nothing. A clamor went up from sports writers across the country for a special vote to determine who, in fact, was the better team. In the unprecedented two-team revote, Michigan was ranked number one. An anonymous polling of USC players revealed that they believed Notre Dame to be the better team, but both the Irish and the Wolverines still claim 1947 as a national championship season. Halfway through 1980, there were few doubters as to whether or not the right team sat atop the rankings. It was Alabama at number one, just as it had been in 1978 and 1979. It had been more than four years since you could find a poll without Alabama's name in it. But at the other end of the rankings, down at number 20, was a school that was experiencing the thrill of seeing its name listed in the weekly AP poll for the first time in program history. The University of Southern Mississippi had been playing football since 1912, just two years after it was founded as a teacher's college in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. It had claimed two national championships while playing in the lesser regarded college division when it was still known as the Southern Mississippi College Southerners, and had gained a reputation as a giant killer. It twice upset Alabama in its post-World War II glory years, and its 1972 squad, featuring Ray Guy, the greatest punter in history, knocked off fourth-ranked Ole Miss. That same year, the school changed its nickname from the Southerners to the Golden Eagles. 1980 marked the program's 18th season competing as a Division I-A independent, and head football coach Bobby Collins had elevated the program to its greatest success since the early 60s. In 1980, the team had started the year with six straight wins, including an unofficial state championship after back-to-back victories over the Magnolia State's two SEC powers, Ole Miss and Mississippi State. The victory against the Rebels came when former walk-on running back Sammy Winder hurdled a defender at the five-yard line on his way to the end zone for the game-winning score. It's a play still remembered around Hattiesburg simply as the leap. The perfect start to the season had earned the school its first ever ranking at the 20th and final spot in the weekly poll. To welcome Southern Miss to the ranks of the, well, ranked, the next game on the schedule was on the road against a team that had spent six straight weeks at the top of the poll, Alabama. Bear Bryant's Crimson Tide had won 50 straight games in Tuscaloosa and 27 in a row overall. Leading up to the game, the Southern Miss head coach expressed to reporters the sobering realization that his team, built on running the ball and featuring the nation's leading scorer at running back would have to rely on the passing game to beat the stingy tide defense. While he may have seemed overly deferential in public privately coach Collins and his players thought they could shock Alabama and upend the college football world. Eagles fans followed their team to Bryant Denny stadium and did so wearing black and gold buttons that said, I believe Alabama struck first delighting its sold-out homecoming crown with a five-play touchdown drive to stake an early 7-0 lead. But the Eagles responded with a 75-yard drive of their own, capped by a one-yard touchdown run by Sammy Winder, and the score remained tied at 7-7 until midway through the second quarter. After a Bama drive stalled near midfield, Bear Bryant sent out his punt team. Southern Miss was poised to gain possession, with a chance to take the lead when disaster struck. Ricky Floyd from the 21 Recovered near the sideline. Alabama would take advantage of the turnover with a touchdown and then add another score before half to make it 21-7 at the end of two quarters. The second half would only get worse for Southern Miss. Another Floyd fumble would again result in an Alabama touchdown. And when the final gun sounded, the Tide had gotten its 28th straight win and humbled the upstart Eagles 42-7. After the game, Bryant would praise the Southern Miss players for their talent and effort particularly their dual threat sophomore quarterback reggie collier the eagles finished the 1980 season with nine wins and captured the school's first ever bowl victory the next year southern miss was again led by bobby collins and enjoyed a successful season that included a 13-13 tie against alabama and a top 10 heisman finish for reggie collier who became the first quarterback in division one football history to rush and pass for 1,000 yards in the same season but in 1982 Collier and the Eagles would again return to Tuscaloosa, this time upsetting Alabama 38-29 to snap the Tide's 56-game home winning streak. It was Bear Bryant's final loss of his career in his last game ever in Tuscaloosa. But Coach Collins would not be on the sidelines for that historic moment. He had left Hattiesburg after 1981 to take over as head coach at SMU. Of all the things that Marilyn Arps brought with her when she enrolled at Southern Methodist University, none was as important to the Mustangs football team as the love of her high school sweetheart, Craig James. James, a year younger than Marilyn, led his Stratford High squad to a Texas state championship in 1978 after a record-setting senior season. His gaudy statistics helped attract scholarship offers from nearly every major program in America, but James's attraction and love for his girlfriend Marilyn made his decision to play for the Mustangs an easy one. But if anything could make James second-guess his choice, it was the signing of another top high school back named Eric Dickerson. It was a car, rather than competition, that gave James pause. Dickerson, who signed before James, had been seen driving a brand-new Pontiac Trans Am, and many suspected that it was an impermissible gift from the SMU coaches that could wind up putting the program on probation. Eventually, Dickerson produced papers that proved his grandmother purchased the car for him, and James signed his letter of intent to form a backfield that would eventually become known as the Pony Express. In their first season on campus, Dickerson was injured, and James got the majority of carries on his way to Conference Freshman of the Year honors. With both backs healthy and alternating carries, The Mustangs raced out to a 4-0 start to the 1980 season in a top-20 ranking, but back-to-back stumbles and close losses against Baylor and Houston had sapped SMU of its early-season momentum as it prepared for a road game against the second-ranked Texas Longhorns. During the weekly press conference before the big game, SMU's head coach Ron Meyer revealed that he was considering a change at quarterback, Due to a poor performance by the team's incumbent starter, including eight interceptions thrown in the team's two previous games. On Thursday, Myers announced that freshman Lance McElhenney would be the starter against Texas. He had grown up just six blocks from SMU's campus in North Dallas. He was an accomplished high school quarterback, but had thrown just 11 passes in his college career. But he presented more of a threat with his legs, and with a new option attack that Coach Meyer installed for the game, he could better complement the lethal combination of Dickerson and James in the backfield. Whoever was lining up under center, it would take a special effort to knock off Texas in 1980. Texas had climbed up to number two in the polls behind the strength of early season victories over Arkansas and Oklahoma. Fourth-year head coach Fred Akers had guided the Longhorns through an uneven schedule, with three weeks off and just five games played heading into the last weekend of October. Akers had taken over for legendary head coach Darrell Royal in 1977 and led the Longhorns to a number one ranking in his first year on the job, behind the hard running of Heisman Trophy winner Earl Campbell. Texas missed out on a national title after losing in the Cotton Bowl to Joe Montana and Notre Dame, but the Longhorns were back in the thick of the championship chase in 1980. During the week of the SMU game, Akers was being asked by reporters of a possible one-versus-two matchup with Bear Bryant and Alabama in the Cotton Bowl at the end of the season. But Texas had more immediate concerns. Four starters were unavailable for the game against the Mustangs, and the Longhorns had just two scholarship-wide receivers available. Texas was also down to its third-string freshman running back, a high school teammate of SMU's McElhenney, who had yet to carry the ball in a college game. Despite the undermanned roster, many of the more than 75,000 fans that filled Memorial Stadium in Austin saw SMU as little more than a speed bump. The Mustangs had a reputation as an underperforming collection of individual talent, and when the game kicked off at 1 p.m., the Longhorns were expected to notch their 14th straight win over their conference rivals from Dallas. SMU took the opening kickoff and used a conservative attack of straight-ahead running to bleed almost seven minutes off the clock. The 14-play drive covered 58 yards, but ended with a missed field goal attempt from 39 yards away. The Longhorns' barefooted kicker, John Goodson, provided all the scoring for his team in the first half, converting on both of his field goal attempts to give Texas a 6-3 halftime lead. SMU was unable to take advantage of an early fumble recovery and consistently good starting field position, missing two field goals and refusing to take any chances with its freshman quarterback. Despite trailing by three on the scoreboard, SMU was controlling the line of scrimmage and bottling up the normally potent Longhorn ground attack. But Coach Akers would have to loosen up the reins on his freshman signal caller in the second half and let the Pony Express run wild. After sharing a sideline for eight years, head coaches Johnny Majors and Jackie Sherrill found themselves on opposite sides of the field when the Pitt Panthers traveled to Knoxville to play the Tennessee Volunteers. First at Iowa State and then at Pittsburgh, Cheryl was an assistant under Majors before the Tennessee native returned to coach his alma mater for the 1977 season. Both men denied that there was any contempt between them, even though they once had to be separated from each other at a Cyclones basketball game. The rumor of their feud stemmed from the events surrounding Majors' decision to leave Pitt to take the Tennessee job. Majors announced the move after the regular season, but before his top-ranked Panthers played in the Sugar Bowl, and Cheryl had been named the successor. The story goes that Pitt insisted that Sherrill, who spent the 1976 season coaching at Washington State, be on the sidelines for Pitt's January 1st bowl game, and Majors was not pleased at the idea of his protege's presence. More grumbling surrounded each coach refusing to allow the other access to game films, and Majors taking of Pittsburgh recruiting files with him when he left for Knoxville. Their war, imagined or not, would be carried out by proxy at Neyland Stadium as Tennessee's brutal 1980 schedule continued. The Vols had opened the year with games against Georgia and USC, both squads currently ranked in the top 8. Then, after scoring an upset against 18th-ranked Auburn, they were hosting 12th-ranked Pittsburgh one week after getting thumped by number 1 Alabama. The young Vols team had talent, but were sitting at an even 3 and 3 on the season. Pittsburgh had taken out its frustrations after a road loss at Florida State by pummeling its rival West Virginia a week earlier, but their victory had come at a cost. Super sophomore quarterback Dan Marino had injured his knee, and backup Ricky Tricano, who had lost his job to Marino the year before and had been converted to the team's starting free safety before the 1980 season, was back under center. Tricano was playing this game with an extra chip on his shoulder after majors opted not to offer him a scholarship and signed current Tennessee starter Jeff Olshevsky instead. The Panthers were a team on a mission. They'd crashed out of the top ten after their loss to Florida State, then slipped another spot despite crushing West Virginia by 28 points. The Pitt players wanted to use each remaining game on their schedule as an audition to show they belonged in the championship discussion, And they wanted this game in particular for their head coach as he squared off against his old mentor. But it wasn't just Cheryl's players that were committed to beating majors and the volunteers. The pit coach had everybody on his staff looking for advantages.
1: When we did our summer reports, I always asked the coaches, you know, because most places break down the film and just do personnel X's and O's. And I always asked our coaches, give me... uh, Things other than X's and O's and, and personnel—that's going to help us win the game. Well, there's two things that came back at Tennessee. Is because of the size of the stadium. You know, even then it was 95,000. Was when they came on the field, it was so deafening that because they put you, the visiting team on the field first. And then you're out on the field and then all of a sudden they come on the field and it's, it's, un, it's unreal, meaning the cheers you get and then the cheers that they get. So it is psychologically a, a big deal. So I remember holding our players in the tunnel and being on TV and they kept saying, you know, go, go, go. And I said, I ain't going. I said, I'm going to go out the same time Tennessee does because they can't boo and cheer at the same time. So we went on the field the same time they did. And before the game, back then, they had TV speakers aligned both sides of the field, but on their side, the the speakers were turned to the stands. On the visitor side, they were turned to the field. So that's all you were hearing. I mean, you're talking about the decimals was like 98, and, and that's loud. So I knew that, and so I, I had a pair of wire, wire cutters and I told. Our security guys cut the speaker wires before the game. So we go out and warm up, and they cut the speaker wires, but they fix them, but we cut them them right before kickoff, so we didn't have the noise on our sidelines. Years later, when I was at Mississippi State in 1991, we go play. Tennessee and, Stadium and I'm out in pregame warm-up and all of a sudden this guy comes up and pulls my shirt and I turn around and he points at me and he says, you're not cutting my speaker wires today. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about.
0: When the game did begin, Pitt seemed to be its own worst enemy. Its first drive ended with a Willie Collier fumble, one of four fumbles lost by the Panthers on the day. Its second drive was short-circuited by a dropped pass. The pit defense was proving to be impenetrable, and after getting the ball back for a third time, the Panthers opened the scoring with a 39-yard field goal. On the ensuing kickoff, Tennessee wide receiver Willie Galt lined up near his own goal line. Galt had qualified as a sprinter for the 1980 Summer Olympic Games in Moscow, but was not allowed to participate when the United States decided to boycott the games. Now, with his team trailing by three and in need of a spark, Galt showed off his wheels with a 100-yard return to put the Vols ahead 6-3. to The extra point was no good, and at the end of the first quarter, Pittsburgh had outgained the homestanding Volunteers 184 yards to 6, but trailed on the scoreboard by three points. A long pit drive resulted in a touchdown, and a fumble forced by Ricky Jackson was turned into seven more points for a 16-6 halftime lead. More pit mistakes in the third quarter kept the lead at only 10 points, but two more Tennessee turnovers led to two Panther touchdowns, and the final score was a deceptively small 30-6. to Pittsburgh's 489 total yards were its highest output of the season, and its defense was characteristically stingy. Hugh Green and company shut out the Volunteers' offense and foiled all of Coach Major's attempts to use misdirection to confuse and expose it. As for the feud between Cheryl and Major's, it appeared to be much ado about nothing. The two field generals had dinner together on Friday night, and their daughters visited one another over the weekend. Pittsburgh was showing no signs of slowing down, despite the loss of its starting quarterback. But were there enough games left in the season for the Panthers to prove they deserved a shot at a second national championship in five years? As for Tennessee, it would finish 5-7. and seven. Johnny Majors would capture two SEC titles in his 16 years as head coach in Knoxville before being forced to resign in 1992. He returned to Pittsburgh to try and restore the Panthers to their former glory, but went just 12-32 and 32 in four seasons before retiring from head coaching for good after the 1996 campaign. Back in Austin, Texas, the third quarter wore on, with the second-ranked Longhorns looking uninspired and clinging to a 6-3 lead over the SMU Mustangs. Texas could not get its vaunted ground game untracked, and a dismal punting performance meant the visitors were regularly in striking distance to tie or take the lead. But SMU was limited by a freshman quarterback playing for the first time. He would finish the game with just a single pass completion for a total of three yards, and his head coach seemed reluctant to take the training wheels off the option attack that would showcase the two-headed monster of Craig James and Eric Dickerson in the backfield. With just over two minutes to go in the third quarter, SMU lined up for a third down play after straight-ahead plunges into the line on both first and second down. McElhinney took the snap and faked the handoff to his diving fullback. He sprinted to his right and came face-to-face with Texas defensive end Dewey Turner before flipping a perfectly timed pitch to his running back, Craig James. James covered the next 53 yards in a flash to score the first touchdown of the game and give SMU a 10-6 lead. The Mustangs added another field goal to stretch their lead to seven points before the fourth quarter began. With Texas's running game ineffective, the Longhorns quarterback dropped back to throw, but fired his third interception of the day. This one returned for a touchdown and a 20-6 SMU lead. The Longhorns swapped quarterbacks, and backup Rick McIver drove his team down to the SMU three-yard line, where it faced a third down in inches. The Texas coaches called for a sweep play that had scored a touchdown in each of their previous five games, but SMU knew it was coming and dropped the running back for a six-yard loss. The fourth down pass attempt fell incomplete, and the Longhorns wouldn't threaten again. It was a methodical and complete victory for SMU, dropping Texas from the ranks of the unbeaten 20-6. James, who after the game said he felt like he had just won the Super Bowl, had his best game of the season with 146 yards on 19 carries. In total, Texas was outgained on the ground 283 yards to 90, and the Longhorns' paper-thin receiving core dropped 11 passes. For SMU, the upset felt like a turning point and marked the beginning of Mustang mania. It would finish the 1980 season with eight wins and play in one of the most memorable bowl games ever against BYU in the Holiday Bowl. Following the season, the team was put on probation for recruiting violations, The Mustangs finished 1981 ranked in the top five and went undefeated in 1982 under their new head coach, Bobby Collins. The program would continue to win throughout the first half of the 1980s, but never escaped the scrutiny of the NCAA. Eventually, in February of 1987, following a series of investigations and penalties after increasingly serious violations, the NCAA canceled SMU's upcoming football season as part of what was referred to as the death penalty. For the Longhorns, the loss was the third in four weeks by the team holding the number two ranking. and The setback was the first of five for the Longhorns in their final seven games, as it would finish unranked after losing to North Carolina in the Blue Bonnet Bowl. In 1981, the Longhorns would rebound to win 10 games, including handing SMU its only loss of the season and would reach number one briefly before finishing the year ranked second. Week 8 of the 1980 college football season didn't have a single matchup between ranked teams, but it still delivered plenty of noteworthy scores. The Portland State Vikings and the all-time leading passer in NCAA history, Neil Lomax, scored an eye-popping 93 points, breaking its own record for most points in a game from the year before. The Vikings won the game by 86 points and covered the spread, but just barely. They were favored to win by 77 In East Lansing, Purdue's Mark Herman set the Division I-A record for most passing yards in a career by throwing for 340 yards in a win against Michigan State to keep his team in a first-place tie in the Big Ten. Elsewhere, Penn State needed a late stop against West Virginia, while Oklahoma struggled with Iowa State before blowing the Cyclones away with three fourth-quarter touchdowns. Around the country, fans were engaged in scoreboard watching as several contests went down to the wire. But nowhere was the scoreboard watching more impactful for a team and a public address announcer than in Fort Worth, Texas. The heavily favored Baylor Bears entered their road game against TCU tied with second-ranked Texas for first place in the Southwest Conference. Led by linebacker Mike Singletary, Baylor was ranked 11th and attempting to start the season 7-0 for the first time in school history. In the third quarter, TCU who was yet to win a game all year, trailed by just a single point and was driving for a go-ahead score. To that point in the game, Baylor had played as if it were in a trance and appeared to be vulnerable to a shocking upset at the hands of the Horn Frogs. As the two teams huddled during a timeout, the stadium's longtime public address announcer, Bob Berry, reported to the crowd that the score in Austin had gone final and SMU had knocked off previously unbeaten Texas, The knowledge that a victory would give them sole possession of first place in the conference seemed to be the wake-up call Baylor was waiting for. The Bears corralled an interception on the very next play and went on to score two more touchdowns to preserve their perfect season. After the game, Singletary would admit that the announcement of the Texas score definitely got his team's attention. TCU's athletics director said after the game that he felt the public address announcer used extremely bad judgment to give the score at that time since it stimulated Baylor. He would go on to say, quote, there's no one to blame but the PA announcer. And then he fired him. Next week on Hidden Yardage, the story of the 1980 college football season. It's the week that changes everything.
1: South Carolina wearing the white today, Rex Robinson in the red here will kick off for the Bulldogs and we're underway.
0: The two greatest runners in America, Herschel Walker and George Rogers, share the field when Georgia and South Carolina collide in Athens. Unbeaten and top-ranked Alabama travels to Jackson, Mississippi to face the inventor of the wishbone offense and his Mississippi State Bulldogs. Undefeated North Carolina and its defense, led by Lawrence Taylor, puts its dream season on the line in Norman against the unstoppable Oklahoma Sooners, and second-ranked UCLA hopes to avoid the number two jinx against Arizona and its backup quarterback in the desert. The Hidden Yardage Podcast is researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Moore. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. For a list of everybody that appeared in this episode and special acknowledgments, visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. There you'll find a full transcript of every show, as well as schedules, stats and standings from the 1980 season. Please email your questions and comments to me at joe at hiddenyardagepodcast.com. This podcast is made possible through Moonlight Magic Productions. Thank you for listening.
2: Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman aka the football history dude, and I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and we're able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, We're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports gesture year, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at Sports. HistoryNetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to SportsHistoryNetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.